Oh, see, this wasn't that hard. It worked out just fine. No, it's actually, look at Instagram Go. I love it. Instagram is uh, it's on top of their game here. I know. I'm very impressed. How are you doing, Nick? I'm doing okay. Uh, <clears throat> a, lot of, a lot of online teaching. How are you doing? Oh, uh, yeah. But are you doing, do you have a lot of group online teaching? Uh, mostly lessons, but we're doing like, yeah. uh, we have, I have one class that I teach, so that's a group, a group thing. And then we do like our trombone studio class all together. So we did that. It was a fun adventure. Yeah, I uh, just did my first NYU class on Thursday, which mm -hmm. worked well. But did it go well? Was yeah, it did. I was a little nervous that like you know you tell a joke and no one does anything. There's no sound. <laughs> True, but, but no, the, it went, the jokes it went, went over well. Uh, well. Apparently, I don't know. Doesn't matter. <laughs> True. We did True. take a break in the middle for everyone to show their cats. So. Oh, yeah, that okay. was a nice little break in the middle of a 90 minute lecture on jazz history. Oh, that's a long, that's long. Yeah. Especially online. Online yeah. seems to stretch time. Even yeah, it really does. Well, it's because it's just one person constantly talking versus right. a classroom where you a can class. have a discussion or whatever. That's so true. Well, I'm excited to have you on the stream today. I guess it's a combined stream. Um, we had um, some questions that came in. So if you're Excellent. watching live, feel free to drop in a question and I'll, we'll see it on the uh, stream here. But we're gonna talk about, uh, we're gonna talk all about Ryan Truesdale today. How great he is. <laughs> I, hope that, I hope that goes well. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the place to start would be talking about the, the role of a producer in jazz because a couple of questions that came in uh, seemed to miss the mark completely or have just no kind of awareness of kind of what the role of a producer, you know, is. And you've produced, I mean, you produced my couple of my records, but more importantly, people like Maria Schneider. And so how do you tell someone what the role of a jazz producer is in uh, 2020? Uh, first of all, not more importantly, your records are equally as important as Maria Schneider's. Um, yeah, it's the role of a producer very in jazz, especially varies um, from kind of project to project. And you have to be able to think on your feet and be able to act depending on what the session needs. Um, a large ensemble session obviously has more people and more things to keep track of than as this, you know, the sessions that we did with you. Um, your sessions are pretty easy or a lot easier for me because you have a lot of it mapped out already. So there's not a lot of me um, having to plan like the schedule for the day and like this is what we do and all those kind of things. But a big role is just kind of the artist has to trust the producer's musical ears and opinions and they have to have some sort of synergy. And so, uh, you and I, when we did cast of characters in here now, we had discussions about what you wanted. We looked at the music ahead of time. We talked about things going into it so that you and I were both on the same page because when you have, depending on how long you have for the sessions, a lot of times it's like one six hour day that you have to come out with a record. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's a lot of just making sure that the takes that are done are, um, good and are worthy of being released to the public. And I have to know you as a musician well enough to know 
that you will be happy with what I hear on tape. You know, we'll be never be happy. We'll never be. Happy. Well, you especially are never happy. You're difficult in that aspect. <laughs> but um, but no, it's and it's hard because a lot of people are. And I mean, I've conducted when I did the Gill records. You know, I had someone in the booth, Dave Ravello in the booth, listening for me because when you're in the room, it's just a different world than what's actually being put on tape. Um, you know, so. Um, but yeah, I mean, just to go down the list, like I, it is my job to make sure that everything is kept on track for the session. And I try to figure out, okay, we've got 11 tracks that we have to get done in maybe two days and they're eight hour days. And you kind of like, okay, let's do this. Um, I listen with scores to make sure there's accuracy. And if I hear anything that's not in tune or not played correctly, that I make note of it. So we, if we decide to use that take, you can go and fix it. Um, another thing that I do, which maybe I always feel a little uncomfortable about, but I just can't help myself is if I hear things compositionally or artistically that I feel would better, um, your video slipped I'm, uh, or switched. Uh -oh. I'm looking at, Switched I'm looking around. at yeah, lamp. your lamp, <laughs> talking to the lamp. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I, I, I try to, I sometimes make compositional artistic suggestions. Like I hear the first take and I'm like, well, you know, we've started every other take with a saxophone solo. We really should move that around or maybe we started in a different way to make this because I'm looking at not just the piece as an individual, but the record as a whole mm -hmm. and what makes sense when you put a collection of things together. Um, and then a lot of psychological. Um, I view my role as kind of a psychiatrist for a session. And so you know the person musicians uh, maybe i'm gonna get a bunch of hate mail on this but like musicians all have various stages of or heightened uh egos of various levels and insecurities with their own playing and i mean this goes for composers too and everybody like we all artists artists have these different levels of interact with all of those different people in order uh -oh. to get what you want out of the session so you know you know like i know for you you have a tendency to not be happy with anything and so you just have sure. to like convince you you know like i have to convince you like no you have to trust me this is good let's move on and then you still will come back and do it when i'm eating you'll fix something when i don't know about it but <laughs> it's fine i've never fixed anything <laughs> perfect yeah 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 so anyway so that's a very long-winded response but yeah that's kind of what i view my role i'm sure there's other things that i do but yeah that's making sure we keep moving we keep on track we get what we want offering up suggestions to help people managing yeah. humans managing humans i was gonna say you know you, there's a lot of stuff that happens that you're doing at least if i'm producing i know that you're doing that's like has nothing to do with when the tape is rolling you're just like come on oh. get back in there come on it's yeah. like hurting hurting cats sometimes it's hurting cats and a large ensemble is even worse because you just multiply that by 20. Um, and every time you want to do a take somebody has to go to the bathroom Yes, 100%. Or somebody's decided to take a snack break. I can't tell you how many musicians I found like just standing in a corner eating nuts and you're like, we're the Hello? 20 people are waiting for you. Let's go. Yeah. That's so funny. Yeah. You know, but for me, like having a producer that you trust is, it makes me like actually like 
be more organized and also like be more thoughtful because I know I'm going to have somebody else's opinion be thrust upon this music. So it makes me want to like be better when it comes to it. I always think about like, what would, what would Ryan say about this? Oh, interesting. Yeah. So you know, I have, a, I have yeah. a question for you along those same lines. Do you feel as a performer in the studio, but also as a leader of the group, do you feel like having a producer in the studio takes some of the weight off of you of uh, doing multiple roles or? Yeah, I mean, for at first it was hard for me to let it go, but then I was like, oh no, this is way better. It's way better to have someone just, I trust this person. They're not gonna let this suck, you know? Yeah. Or it's not gonna suck any more than it's gonna suck. Oh Jesus, I knew you I knew you couldn't let that go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, also, I, uh, I see there's a message. Luke Stillwell says, hi Ryan, with a little heart. Oh, I can't, I'm learning how to do this now that we're, hi Luke. Oh, oh little hearts. <laughs> Oh, you nice. did it so much faster. I've been trying to teach myself now that we're in a digital Zoom world. There we go. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> anyway. Um, but yeah, I, I think I, it's, I don't want to go back to not having a producer. It just makes it every, everything go easier for me to know that somebody's like, yeah, you got it. Stop being such an idiot. Just go to the next song. Yeah, and, and it, depending on how you are, not you specifically, but you as the general, uh, mm -hmm. are as a musician, people can get bogged down you just keep playing a take and a take and a take and a take. And even if we haven't gotten a take, and I think I've even done this with you. I know I've done it with other people when producing, you do three takes of a tune and it may not be perfect, but you're like, we got to move on yeah. for the morale of everything. Mm -hmm. And then you can come back and do it later. But if you right. don't have someone keeping you in check a little bit, mm -hmm. um, even the greatest musicians on the planet, can get bogged down in the minutia of all this and, and it can really ruin a whole session. Right. Yeah. Especially if it's at the beginning and you get bogged down too quick. Yeah. Like... And one of my, not to give my secrets away, but I will say, and you've experienced this, I always redo the first take or the first tune at the end of the entire session. Mm -hmm. I always, I always say if we've got like a, 15 minutes left over just do it again we have it in the bag and it kind of takes the loose or it makes them a little looser mm -hmm. and uh and we tend sometimes it's not better but if we there's something about the first take everyone's kind of getting used to the room and the situation and everything the headphones it's, and everything yeah it's just if you have a chance to redo that first track again it just once don't beat it to you know don't beat a dead horse but so I know how I think about it, but how do you think about like selecting like the first song of the session? Oh, it's so hard. Um, I usually try to do, yeah, that's a very good uh, question. Um, you have to balance just like you would honestly a performance. I mean, I kind of set it up as a gig. Like I would do a set list. You want to do something that you know, gets the band playing, but is relatively easy. Like I don't do the easiest tune first. Um, I reserve that one, but I do like kind of like a medium, medium, easy tune. One that doesn't have a lot of uh, stops and starts if they have to be done in pieces or a lot of like weird tempo changes or something like something that's just straight ahead because like you said, everyone's getting used to headphone mixes and uh, all of those details and whatever. So I kind of do that. And then 
depending on how many tunes there are. And there's always one tune that is either brand new or really difficult. And the band has played it a bunch, but somehow never works in the studio. You know, there's always those right. tunes that you have to allow a little extra time and give people a buffer. So, yeah. Um, so this kind of relates to one of the questions that you had that you sent from your um, followers. This is from Stephen Harvey, because he, he said, uh, what are some of the challenges Great composer. of producing large ensemble recordings as opposed to small ensemble recordings? We kind of touched on yeah, a little bit. But... Yeah, we touched on It's just there's more of them. Um, and I feel like my role, I still am doing the same level of attention to detail and score and whatever. Um, obviously, there are more score lines in a large mm -hmm. ensemble thing. So there's more to listen to, more mistakes to listen for, those kind of things. But the biggest challenge of large ensemble uh, producing, and this is why I personally believe, and I'm not just saying this as a producer myself, but I don't know how people do a large ensemble recording without a producer, because right. there are so many cats to be herded and to keep, and and just, emotions and personalities and everything to balance in in all of this you have to there's no way from all the people that might be watching this or whatever that are leaders of large ensembles or conductors and composers they all know that is nearly impossible to do it without adding the stress of having a recording happening at the same time and so to have someone else that can equally go out there and herd in a different direction, like two sheepdogs going like this, uh, <laughs> I think is, is good. And it's just a lot to listen for. I've noticed, I've actually oh, yeah. noticed in a lot of recordings that are happening now that I see on the Instas um, that uh, people are having multiple people in the booth at one time. That then starts to make me a little panicked. I mean, I understand why they're doing it, but it makes me a little panicked because then it's like, you have enough to deal with with the cats in the room and now you've got herding yeah. cats in the booth and it's it's a lot but anyway it is a lot of just information that you have to be in charge of and and right. that's what i think makes a good producer is someone that's able to navigate all of that you feel like there's a situation of too many cooks in the kitchen sometimes oh totally totally yeah. and it's and it's difficult too um and i struggle with this as a producer um and as a leader, you know, I have so many personal feelings about what I want the artistic output to be of my own projects. But then you've got some person that you granted, like you said, you trust in the booth telling you things and you're like, mm -hmm. but you know, and then you, there's always a moment where the two are discussing that. And it's kind of like, do I trust? Like, I feel very passionately, like this should be this way. But the leader also is like, this is my music. This should be this way. And you're kind of like those fine lines of dealing with that. And there's one of those in every session and you just deal with it. I don't know. Did we do that? I'm sure we did it. But I think you were kind of like, Probably. I don't care. Just do it. <laughs> yeah, no, I've, I've, I've just, I've tried to learn to just trust that other people probably have better opinions than mine. Like in the moment, like I can't judge it very um, non-judgmentally. That, that, see that's my feeling with not to make this all about producing but like 
that's what's so great is I feel like I'm, why not have someone like, not me specifically, but why not have a producer in your session? Because I have to believe, I mean, I don't do it, but playing trombone has got to be hard enough as it is. And to do it well and navigate reading all this complex music and balancing everything that you have going on around you. You just can't, you, there's, it's impossible for you to remove yourself from that situation and observe the bigger picture. Like you have to be, I can't, I mean, I played saxophone for a long time and I can't imagine being like, oh, buttons and doing all these things and then having to be like, oh, right. do I have to know what 22 other people are doing at the same time. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, no, I think it's a really important thing that usually gets overlooked, but I, I think the better, I, I, I feel like you can tell if a project has a producer, there's some little, I don't know, whatever. Yeah, it's like a little more polished maybe, or a little more, there's just, I don't yeah, know, organized. I don't I, know, maybe I feel these like are bad words, but. Well, no, I think it's, what I was thinking was confidence. Like, I feel like mm. you can hear in like a relaxed, there's like a relaxation in some cases, sometimes absolutely not. But, um, you know, like, I just feel like there's a confidence. You've got two ears focusing on the same thing. And yet you are then relieved of having to focus on that. You know, mm -hmm. you can focus on playing and you can play better by doing so. And I also think, you know, and I'm not, I'm going to use you as an example, even though you're not an example, but um, like sometimes musicians and they write their own music and they solo on every tune. And, you know, it's just like, oh, trombone, 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 trombone. And it's kind of like, yeah, yes. And then you get a producer in there and you're like, you know, what if we didn't have trombone, <laughs> you know, and it's just, but then you look at the, you look at like when you listen to a record, I mean, I have to believe people understand that. Like when, whether they acknowledge that or not, they have to be like, God, we're starting on a saxophone solo again. Like, Oh God, the fifth track has, Oh, let me guess what's going to happen. Oh, saxophone solo. So um, just being able to balance the overall big picture of everything I think is helpful. Yeah, that makes sense. So if you're watching live now, feel free, we're taking questions live uh, as we talk here. Uh, so feel free to drop them into the comments or we do have some questions that we prepared uh, by asking ahead of time. But um, I should say prepared. That. Nick has them prepared. I have no clue what I he's going to ask me. Um, I'm going to ask you one of the other question that came in on your end. Which oh, then I know this one. Brian Croc. Hi, Brian. Uh, Here's your Brian question. Brian said Big Heart Machine is his uh, handle. But he asks, uh, so if you don't know, Ryan has a great ensemble called the Gil Evans Project. He's been doing for how many years have you been doing it now? Uh, this will be our ninth, which is ninth sadly year. probably not going to happen because of this, but Corona thing. But Corona. anyway. But um, we hope. He, he I shouldn't have said, to, I shouldn't have I said know, that no. out loud. You're putting it out. I shouldn't have said that. It's going to happen. We're going to do it. And we're doing it at the jazz. Can I plug my stuff? Yeah, go plug away. Okay, I'm going to plug this in putting this out into the world because it's going to happen. And somehow everyone's going to wear hazmat suits to the gig and it's just going to work. But the last week of May, we are doing our ninth year at Jazz Standard in this year in New York City. And this year we are doing Sketches of Spain, which has never been done in a tiny basement jazz club. 
Um, but we're going all out and it's going to be incredible if it happens. So be, keep your eyes out at the moment. It's still happening. So anyway, you need to all make right. sure you film the, the setup so we can see how you get all the timpani and harp up on the stage. Oh, I should. Yeah. I've got to, yeah. I'll film all the timpani being brought down the stairs and right. Yeah. I don't know how we're going to do that. Anyway. Anyway. So uh, the question was, <laughs> yes, the question was, uh, does Ryan have a favorite Gil Evans arrangement? So do you have a favorite arrangement? Um, or a couple? Favorite couple arrangements? I, uh, I was thinking about this when Brian sent it in. Um, if I had to pick one, if you made me pick one, mm -hmm. I'd probably say Gil's arrangement of Barbara song, which is truly remarkable hands down it was the thing that probably it was the one arrangement that totally changed my views on Gill like made me fall in love and was like this is exactly what should be happening in composition and arranging um, but I also know every other uh, big band oh Brian just joined yeah I don't Hi, Brian. we're answering your question Brian um, so I just to recap, because Brian just joined, I said Barbara song, but um, uh, the only th I also think that that is become kind of a bit of a cop out because every composer I know is always like Barbara song, Barbara song. I mean, Maria was the one that first played it for me when I took my lesson with her eons ago, and um, and sh and when I first heard that, I ran down to Tower Records when it still existed. And I bought like every Gil Evans record after that. It was remarkable. Um, if I had to do some other ones that are truly incredible, uh, his arrangement, they're all ballads, weirdly enough. Well, maybe not. They're not all ballads. But my ship that he did on Miles Ahead is mm -hmm. pretty remarkable. Um, there's an arrangement that he did uh, for Astro Gilberto called uh, of I Will Wait For You. Um, that's incredible and it's and and i think part of the thing that's so magical about these is when you actually look at the harmonies and orchestrations of what he's doing there's aspects of it that are like totally mind-blowing you would never think of doing that but then when you look in another way you're like well that kind of totally makes sense and it's super easy and very simple like the i will wait for you is mostly just triads moving triads and a lot of it is the triads with what's going on in the bass and the voice and what he's got set up rhythmically and all those other kind of different layers, but I will wait for you. Um, some of the Thornhill, I mean, you've played this. You, I should ask you the same question. Some of the Thornhill stuff is pretty amazing. How about you is the one that Gil got his Grammy for um, is remarkable because there is um, yes, I will wait for you. Yeah. Brian, totally. Uh, uh, but like, how about you? He has three piccolos in these really tight, high configurations over the harmony. And it's just like, who puts three piccolos on top of a big band? It's the stupidest thing ever, but it's incredible. Yeah, well, I mean, I was, that's what I was gonna say was that one. How about you? Mm -hmm. What's, so I'm gonna turn the tables. What's, uh, cause you've played all of this stuff. You've played in the band Probably for- most of it. Yeah. It's, you've played all of it. You've played for like 10 years with the band. You've played all of it. So what what would be your one first favorite Gill arrangement that you enjoy uh, and then, or composition? And then what is your favorite one to play? 
Well, I know that my least favorite one to play oh, that was the introduction question. to um, Laughing at Life. Oh, yeah. That, that one's really it, brutal. It's in E major, I think. And it's yep. like, it goes up to a high E, like in unison, the first two trombones. And I'm yep. like, no, nope, that's just not yep. going to happen. It sounds <laughs> terrible every time we do it. And it's fast, right? And it's fast. And you yeah. always want to play it super fast. I like it super fast, yeah. Um, but I don't know. There's something about the those shout courses with the piccolo on "How about you?" that yeah. gets me every time, and the and the um, horns. But yeah. one that I always come back to also is um, Claire. From, oh, uh, that's incredible! Games. And it's like so almost nothing to it, but there's almost he's literally one measure that he's just changed the orchestration. That's the only thing he's done, and it's just repeated. But I will say with prayer there um, is nothing like doing it live. Mm -hmm. Like a, I can't really listen to the record anymore after I've done it, like standing in front of the band because it is so deep the way that it builds yeah. and oh, it's so incredible. That's, yeah, a, oh, something that's about a good one. That one. Yeah. I don't, that's I don't know one. what it is about it. It's not cause it's not like, Oh, he's playing all every note or some complicated thing, but I don't know. Something no, it doesn't sure. need it. And it's just kind of that, like, it gets you, and this is what I love about Gil, too, is that there's, he doesn't, he doesn't give you more than you need. It's mm. all very simple, and it gets this, he creates, um, he creates these atmospheres, these world, these little worlds where the soloist or the musicians can kind of live and survive. And I feel like prayer is one of those like kind of just drones so much so much that you can just kind of really get into it and i feel like every soloist that has done it with me has always really brought out the best in them somehow and they've really gone to a diff different place than they usually do yeah because you can't let up for a second because the band is still there like yeah pushing pushing them or at least that's how it feels i don't know oh prayer's a good one um, yeah, I also I like that um, ballad of the sad young men. Oh, that's that oh, that's another beautiful. Yeah, that's another favorite. There's a moment where the tuba comes up and the trombones and everything goes down. You know that like, what is it? The second eight bars, the last like two bars of it. The trombones have that thing by themselves, and the tuba comes oh, yeah. up and it ends up in that like A. I think it's A something or other major anyway i can't remember the specifics but yeah ballad and then what is it the high point of the trombone c or high d d the d yeah do, do, do. yeah yeah that's it's killing uh, somebody um, just said some question i can't read it i can read it from luke luke says uh how have you guys been handling the quarantine as faculty and as artists any projects coming to life during this lockdown oh do you want to go first how, or do you want me to how am I handling it? That is one day at a time. Uh, yeah. But for me, it's actually, I mean, I've always got a million lists of things to do. So I've actually been slowly catching up. Uh, so it's been pretty positive in that regard for me. But yeah, I, I think it's so the, the challenge that I've noticed and, I, you know, I've obviously a lot of people are having these conversations about mm -hmm. this because everyone's going through this at the same time. But um for me, it's it, it it does. I feel a little guilt because it's like, oh my gosh, I have all of this time to catch up on things. 
right um and to really focus on other things and but it's also a little difficult because a lot of my projects are involving more than 10 people and everyone's a little bit gun shy as to when we're going to get back fully to be able to do concerts and things like that again so and not in the financial situation of the country um in the world uh mm -hmm. is a little hard to be like hi book a big band yeah <laughs> it's super affordable it's super affordable what you need anti-corona is a big band so um yeah so those but it's it's you just have to remember i keep telling myself if i need moments to sit on the couch and watch netflix that i can't feel guilty about that mm -hmm. and um and that this is the one moment in time of our lifetimes um hopefully hopefully the last uh that the entire planet is going through the same thing at the same time and right. so to know that you're not alone in this and we're all doing what we can to keep by and mm -hmm. yeah. yeah and then so yeah faculty can. yeah zoom is like the greatest thing ever best thing that's happened to schools mm -hmm. um or at least when everyone lives in their apartments <laughs> uh yep. but yeah zoom classes and zoom meetings and zoom happy hours and dinners i had dinner with someone the other day with them sitting at the other end of my table on the computer oh and, that's nice yeah. so uh he's luke says no zoom rehearsals yeah no we canceled all, all of our rehearsals no rehearsals. oh for faculty yeah you're for unt i mean you guys yeah for unt yeah there's no more rehearsals all those classes are yeah I mean, I, I've actually been curious about that because I've seen a bunch of people do like recordings where everyone records their part at home. Right. But they all do right. that separately, right? Is there a live separately, rehearsal yeah. thing? I don't know. There's something called, I haven't checked it out, called Jam Kazam. I haven't checked it out, but some people have told me about it, but I just, I don't think anyone has a fast enough internet connection to really do anything live. Even this is, yeah. would be too slow, you know, to actually play together. Yeah. Well, you wouldn't want that anyway, so. <laughs> Andrew so, Gataskis. Hi, Andy. Watching. Oh, hi, Andy. He gave us yeah. some hearts. I love hearts. Oh, I'm Did sending more that? hearts back. I'm not fast. Oh, yeah, that was right. You're I mean, supposed to, it takes, yeah. takes me a minute to get it going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Um, um, yeah. So uh, there was some, another question here that I was interested to get your feedback it, somebody texted it to me because they said it was too long of a question. Um, says, sorry, this question is too long. This guy's name is Drewby Taylor. I don't know who it is, but uh, how did he text? Oh, like DM'd it or something. Yeah, yeah sorry, yeah, he DM'd yeah. it to me. It says, how do you, the both of you, go about instrumentation for creating textures and developments, reads, uh, read combinations, mutes, etc., and the difference in approach between the two groups? I guess he means large ensemble and small ensemble. Wait, is that the end of it or does it keep going? That's the end of the question. Read it again. I'm a little confused. Uh, how do you, the both of you, go about instrumentation for creating textures, uh, meaning read combinations, mutes, etc., and the difference in approach between a large and small ensemble with so reads is, and mutes and textures? Is he talking about like orchestration or is he talking about how we choose what instruments play on which chart? Um, I'm not sure that he knows that that question has that part to it. Okay. Necessarily. So I, 
When he said I mean, development, made me think he was thinking of orchestration. Yeah, because he said developments. That's the word that he used. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm not sure. Well, uh, I suppose I should take the large ensemble one and you take the small ensemble one. Yeah, for me, I've been just trying to, for the last, I guess since the first record that you produced for me was, I've been trying to at least do one or a couple of tracks that definitely have a different sound to give people like a break uh, orally. And so I think about it from that experiential point, like hearing an open trombone again and again and again and again just gets to be a little bit boring after a while. So I've tried to include mutes and mute combinations and I make uh, Lucas Pino play bass clarinet. And then the guitar has a lot of different, you know, colors that can be applied to it. So try to kind of just switch those up. Um, but I've, lately, I guess I try to compose and orchestrate at the same time, meaning like the, thinking about the texture as I'm writing it, I guess, or as I'm thinking about what the mood of the piece might be, that that texture is coming right from the beginning rather than like developing it later, which might be different for a large ensemble. Uh, no, and I, I mean, you and I have talked about this a lot with your own writing and with my writing too, but the the biggest thing that I notice, and we'll, I guess I'll just address small group stuff because I feel like a lot of small groups are like, in order to change the instrumentation or the colors of what's happening, I have to add instruments. So it has to get bigger and bigger and bigger. But you can make, you know, a piano and a bass duo you know, you can change the color of both of those instruments throughout a record. You know, there is so much that each instrument can do in order to change the color. And yes, um, that's when I see a bunch of compositions or something for a record and I look at it and it's like, they all are open horns and they all start the same way. They all basically have the same form and who has the melody is usually the leader. So it's usually the same instrument. You know, it's mm -hmm. like those kind of things which you think about in the moment when you're writing, you're like, oh, this would be great for saxophone to play. And then you start writing, you know, three weeks later, you write another tune, you're like, oh, this will be great for saxophone to play. And then you put them all together and you realize the saxophone's doing everything. Um, for development, uh, especially in terms of large ensemble, it's again, it's just more people that you're dealing with. And you mm -hmm. have to realize that the colors of the instruments you have to be reserved with. So a good example that I always think of is like the piano. So, or any of the rhythm section for that matter. Tendencies with composers, large ensemble composers are to concentrate when you're looking at a score to concentrate on the upper two thirds of it, which is all the horns, because those are the ones that don't know what to do unless you tell them what to do mm -hmm. so that it sounds collective. <laughs> but the rhythm section, everyone's like, oh, they'll just make it up. And they just give them like right. harmonic nothing. things. And yeah, they give them nothing. And so what happens is piano players or, I mean, the bass player has to more or less walk unless they're instructed verbally. Otherwise, the drummer is going to play time. But the mm -hmm. piano player and the guitar player usually are stuck in this kind of like, do we play? Do we not play? And I feel like the default answer is always, we're going to play until, them, until they tell us not to. So right. what happens is you have, and I'm not picking on pianists, so I don't get hate mail on this, but like you have piano players 
playing and comping and comping and comping and comping and comping and there's playing and playing and then all of a sudden there's a piano solo and it's like oh okay the piano solo whatever blah 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 and then there's comping and comping and comping and it's not necessarily a color that you um are aware of that's there but unconsciously that sound is always there Mm -hmm. but if you think about it if you didn't have the piano player do anything on a tune until the solo happened, that would be a brand new color. We have not heard that in that piece and up until then. You know, look at, uh, you know this with Bob's music. So like Brookmeyer's music, he, the way he used piano was genius because he used it just like another instrument. So he often would just have them laying out and then he would hit some high note in a hole somewhere, you know, and it's just such a brilliant color and it brings your ear to that moment and it's just, and to think of orchestration in that way that you're, uh, you know, that you're um, bringing, I don't know what I'm trying to say. Like you're bringing someone's ear and you're, pull, you're literally pulling someone along on mm-hmm. this thing. And so you have to not just care about chords and trumpets and doing this all the time big stabs and whatever but to really bring the listener along this path and making this constantly new and i think that's really important in this day and age which are you know we're limited about 60 seconds of actual you know focus on something and then they slip and swipe and do whatever yeah to have some little thing that changes again Uh going back to prayer what you said before that's the brilliance of prayer is he has the same, literally the same four beats of music mm-hmm. that he's, he does for seven minutes or whatever. But every three repetitions of that, the orchestra- orchestration changes. And it's just slight shifts and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and builds to this big climactic thing. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't change the harmony. It's just stacking in different ways and having different instruments play different parts. Right. Right. Yeah, I definitely stole that thing that you were talking about with Bob. At least, I can think of at least three or four examples in my own music. The piano like, thing. Yeah, the piano thing. Just leave yeah. it out. Just tell him to stroll for a while. Yeah. It's, it's, he comes in with something and then it zips you right to it. Or like I'll have the piano player not play and then he'll, play, he'll take the first solo or something. Yes. And, and it makes, because it's just like a breath of fresh air. And you would never for some reason it took me a long time to realize that that you know and like if you listen like listen to a couple of gills recordings or something because those are good examples of specifically of the piano because mm-hmm. gill is conducting a lot of right. times but he's also playing piano and so you'll go like barbara song is really beautiful in that way because he has a little bit of piano things here and there but it's not overpowering the the arrangement um you know, like look at his arrangement of Round Midnight. You know, he gives the piano the melody and then a bunch of other stuff happens in the band and other people pass the melody around and he just lays out, he doesn't play until he's playing melodically. And so it makes that piano sound really refreshing. God, I'm gonna get so much hate mail from pianos. No, no you're not. <laughs> but I think about the same thing with like Duke Ellington would do the same, right? Yep. He would play and then sometimes I'm like, why is there no piano? It's like, oh, he was conducting because this yeah. is hard. There's like too much going on. He couldn't play anything. I'm like, yeah, oh, that makes exactly. a lot of sense. So it's been happening for a history of jazz. 
Yeah, it's true. And it's, if you, it's fun to listen. I mean, I, I do it because I'm a nerd, but um, I listen to recordings, not necessarily of what's going on, but sometimes I just listen orchestrationally. Mm -hmm. Like I'll just focus in on one instrument, like almost like I'm transcribing it. And I just kind of like, okay, what are they doing? Oh, interesting. Why did they stop playing? Did, what, did they mess up? No, the composer, did he do it on purpose? Did they like not right. copy and paste something for them or whatever? Right. But no, right. I, I think it's really fascinating because then when you start listening to that, you'll, you're aware of how, how that happens in other music that you're listening to. Right. Or like, no, like when I go back to listen to those Gill things now with more knowledge about what's in the part and hearing like oh yeah that is really hard <laughs> it's always yes. been really hard <laughs> yeah but it, it, it's not just jazz either i mean like listen listen to pop music that way you know why does some pop music get like why do we like as snooty little jazz musicians hate some pop music but if you mm -hmm. like sit down and listen to it there are subtle things in there that are you know interesting like um I watched, this is so embarrassing. Maybe we should cut this out. Yeah, anyway, I'll too say late it now. doesn't matter. It's too late. But I was watching, um, you know, quarantine deep dives on YouTube or something. Oh, sure. And I came across um, a video talking about um, how everybody hates single ladies of Beyonce, which I didn't know true? that everyone did. I didn't know that was true, but apparently- I feel like people love that song. I know, that's what I thought too. But apparently it's like, maybe it's like the snooty artist music musician kind of crowd anyway so i went back and i listened to it i was like because i had the same reaction i was like really people hate that i thought i liked that and the thing i never realized was there's no bass in it until true? there's just bass drum no there's it's it's all there's no bass function in the whole first part of it until it goes to that weird chromatic where it goes to like c natural in the e i don't, I don't know it that well <laughs> uh, anyway it's, there's um and i'm not going to sing it because it'll be on the internet or whatever but yeah it's you go back and listen to single ladies because all of a sudden it was like oh i never realized that there was no like bass bass in there until the one moment when it comes in and then that's like oh shit yeah right right right, right. and of course it's like this big funky note that they hit but yeah i don't know well that's interesting i didn't know everybody hated that song i thought everybody loved that song See, that's what made me go through it because everyone's like, oh, I hate this song. I was like, really? When did that happen? I thought that was yeah, a pretty when did that happen? dope song, but I don't know. Anyway. So guys, if you guys are watching live, we're happy to take a few more questions that way. I do have a couple more that we saved up. Um, this is a good one. And I'm very interested in this question. Um, this is also from Luke Stillwell. He says, tell more stories about Bob. But uh, I'll tell my story about Bob. Just do you see Bob's here? That's, he is there. He yeah, is. that's a picture of Bob. Back of his head. No, uh, no, that the that's the berry player. Here, we'll go over and see Bob. Oh yeah, I, take me over. Take yeah. us over. Oh, there he is. Yeah, that yeah. That's sitting over my piano. He's there to vibe you every day. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> so when I, you'll have a better story than me. So I'll do my story first because it's not as good. But uh, the first time I met Bob was when he came to Eastman when I was a student there. And I just remember he was, he was supposed to be doing the forum class, which is like all the, all the students together. And so somebody asked like one question about music and he started talking about music, but somehow it morphed from 
talking about, I don't know, Clark Terry to all of a sudden he was talking about 9-11 conspiracy theories and then he never, he never got away from it for the whole rest of the hour. <laughs> the conspiracy stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and people were there trying to redirect the conversation and it was just like, I was like, wow, this guy's really, really deep into this. Yeah. And I just, like, this is fast. To me, it was like, wow, this is fascinating because when I hear him play, like, you know, from that period with like Clark Terry, so, seems so happy and positive and then <laughs> the stark yeah. contrast. Well, it's I like, think, wow, this guy is fascinating. I mean, I didn't know Bob when he was playing with Clark, but yeah, the conspiracy thing I think happened a little bit later. I think uh, uh, the first, mm, maybe it was the second Bush presidency <laughs> is what, <laughs> what really set him off. And as sure. much as I miss Bob, I, I don't know that he could have survived <laughs> to the Trump, president, Trump era. That's true. <laughs> just, I think that was, I think he he left us at a probably a healthy time for him. Um, I, I mean, I don't know. It's hard to tell Bob's stories. There's so many of them. I was very fortunate to, um, to spend a lot of time with Bob and his lovely wife, Jan, and at their house. And I mean, I'll, I'm sure I'll think of something specific, but I mean, like some of my favorite moments with Bob was, and it was remarkable because I don't know anybody anybody that does this in our lives um our age or younger or older or anything um i would go up to his house for a weekend and he had a studio beautiful studio in the basement and um we would go in there and we would listen to music for 12 hours nonstop, just like everything that you could imagine we were listening to um uh marianne mccall a singer with the Woody Herman band back in the forties. And then we'd listen, and then we'd listen to one track of that. And then we would listen to uh, Louis Andreessen. And then we would go and listen to like Ligeti. And then he'd play some piece that he wrote in the nineties or the eighties or something that I had never heard of before. And he played this great thing with synthesizers. And then we'd go back and listen to, you know, some, early thing and we did that nonstop and he loved to do it and we didn't do anything other than just talk about it you know uh talk about the music what did we like he would hit me to any and i was so my ears were opened up to so much music by doing that Mm. um because it's music that i would never have necessarily been encountered with in my just regular listening um bill um uh I just thought I, um, Bill Finnegan, uh, the Sauter Finnegan, Eddie Sauter and Bill Finnegan had a band together and they did the Sauter Finnegan Orchestra. Do you know the Sauter Finnegan? You no. don't? No. Oh, you got to check it out. So Sauter yeah. Finnegan, for those of you that don't know, Sauter Finnegan was kind of a commercial-ish thing. Like they played kind of, kind of like commercial tunes and kind of cutesy little things. But both of those writers bill finnegan and eddie Sauter. which if you listen to there's like eddie Sauter was the one that did stan getz's focus everyone okay. probably yeah, yeah, knows yeah. that record um bill finnegan did a bunch of stuff as an arranger um he's incredible anyway but they wrote these things and it's kind of a glorified wind ensemble there's a lot of double reads there's percussion and celeste and harp in some places and whatever but orchestrationally and compositionally they're so incredible and like nothing you've ever heard 
like there's a, a really beautiful arrangement that they did of April in Paris and just there's really gems in there and I don't think a lot of people would know that but he would play you know there's a record called Out of the Blue that Carol Sloan did that he turned me on to um, that Bill Finnegan did the writing on and Clark's on it and Bob's on it yeah so those wow. listening things were something that are really like really special memories for me with Bob but I mean, there was great stuff. He was so funny. He was so funny. Um, and as dark as he could get in moments with, um, especially the conspiracy thing and the government and all that kind of stuff, um, he was so loving and warm to people. Mm-hmm. Like he would call me, and I know he did this with other students and other musicians. Um, he would call people every day and or every other day or something and he would just say you know check in make sure you're writing make sure you're doing this you know those kind of things um he did that with bill finnegan when bill finnegan was um getting up there in life he would call him every Mm -hmm. day and just make sure that he was moving his pencil and doing those things so yeah he was i miss him a lot there's a lot of things that i wish you know my default would be to just call him and yeah but Anyway, no, there's, I mean, I'm trying to think of the other good stories. My, my audition with NEC was a little harrow, harrowing. <laughs> he, I can only uh, imagine. I mean, yeah, try to, so walk, I walked in there and I was going for composition, but I had to play too. They made you play and I'm, oh. so I got up there and I didn't realize something about me was like, I'm sure Bob's not going to be there. Like, why would Bob Brookmeyer go to my audition? <laughs> <laughs> and no he was sitting there like arms crossed right there and he didn't say a word to me the entire time i didn't really not a not a peep um and i had to play i don't know do you know that jim hall brookmeyer recording that they did mm-hmm. together the duo and they yeah. played skating in central park mm-hmm. so i played that tune and it didn't dawn on me that i was playing that tune with Bob and that I had done a lot of stuff because I'd listened to it so much that a lot of what I was playing and improvising and the way that I phrased the melody was the way that Bob phrased the melody. And I was like, Oh God, he's going to (laughs) know. Yes. Um, He's going to know. But then the next time I saw him was before, uh, before I found out if I got into school, but it was at Maria Schneider's concert in the garden recording. Mm. and he walked in and I was like oh my god and he sat down next to me and on this bench at Avatar in in room A where we were and he sat down and he and again he didn't say anything at the audition I didn't know he knew me from Adam and uh he just he leans over and, and he goes well I said hi Bob and he goes hi and I said yeah I just I don't know something I was mumbling and then he goes well I hope you get in. And I was like, what does that mean? What does that mean? <laughs> and so then I was like, and immediately I was a little eager because it was like Bob Brookmeyer's talking to me. So I just started yammering on to him. And this whole time I was supposed to be producing and helping Maria. And she's yelling at me from the booth and there's some problem and I have to fix it out. But I was just talking to Bob and he just looks at me and he goes, I think you're needed. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh okay. <laughs> but anyway that's so funny 
he's 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 a good guy and if anyone doesn't know bob i'm sure everyone knows because he's a trombonist and this is a trombone feed but um there's there's a lot of really great brookmeyer recordings as a trombonist um that's actually how i came to know him i didn't know him as a composer first i knew him Ah. as a player he was my favorite he still is my favorite instrumentalist Mm. and soloist Gotcha. So this is a question. This is kind of a selfish question, I suppose. But uh, it's your so page. You're allowed to do whatever. You mentioned that. So that would have been 2002, 2003. Schneider's? Yeah. Yeah. Or 2003. That. 2003, right? So yeah. when did you start having that relationship with Maria and how did that come about? Uh, did you do that on purpose? Two. No, I realized what I did after I said that. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so, um, she's going to hate me for this because now people are going to think that this is the way you get in touch with her. Um, oh, I, well, you don't have to tell them. Well, no, it's fine because, well, what I did when I was in undergrad in Minnesota, she was from Minnesota. Right. Um, she went to the Twin Cities for her undergrad and, um, and that's where I was at the same time. And so anyway, I decided that I wanted to take a lesson and she was coming with the band to perform at the university. And so I wrote to her manager at the time, which I didn't know at the time was Jim Hall's daughter. Um, so, yeah. So I wrote to Devra and, and I just said, excuse me. I said, uh, you know, I'm, my name is Ryan and I like to write music and whatever. And I, I said, I'm sure she's really busy because I know she sees her family's here, but if she would have time while she's here to take a lesson, I would, I would really like that. And at that time, which I didn't realize she was more or less stopping her private teaching that she had been doing. She it was not something that she wanted to do anymore because she just didn't have time for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and somehow she, she told me, I asked her this and she told me years later, she goes, I don't know what it was, but there was something about the way that you worded your email and that you were from Wisconsin and Minnesota and something that I felt like I should do this lesson, Mm -hmm. but she obviously didn't do it in Minnesota. So she said, well, if you're ever in New York, you know, look me up and I'll give you a lesson. And my brother was playing, uh, my brother's a percussionist for those that don't know. And he was playing at Carnegie hall uh that summer and so the whole family went out and that was one of my first like real trips i'd gone like tourist stuff but like went out there and family went out and did a tourist thing and i sat in my hotel room and i was like here we go we're going over to schneider's and yeah we had a lesson that was like two hours and that's the only lesson that we had we listened to some music that's where she played barber song for me for the first time i went down and bought a bunch of gill records and um one of the things I was just trying to think of how it continued past my lesson. So one of the things we talked about in my lesson, I had just started listening and discovering Thornhill music mm-hmm. and Gill's writing for that. And I had, I, we were talking and I just said out of the blue, I said, Oh, polka dots and moonbeams is one of you know my favorites that I'm listening to right now. It's really incredible. And she goes, Oh, just a second. And she goes, into her bedroom, into a filing cabinet, and pulls out photocopies of all the original parts to the Thornhill, oh, wow. like Thornhill version of Polka Dots mm-hmm. and Moonbeams. And she goes, oh, I have all the parts, but I don't have a score. And so she gave me those, and I took them home to Wisconsin, and I made a score out of them, because I told her that I had done that as score study when I was a librarian at the University of Minnesota. 
And then I sent her the score to Polka Dots and Moonbeams, and then I didn't hear from her for a month or two. And then she asked me if I would copy Journey Home. She's like, oh, I well. need to start selling these things on my website. Would you copy this? So I think Journey Home is my first one. And then she did a project with um, Yvonne Lintz, the Danish radio big band, and Toots Tielemans. And I caught, and she had to do like 13 or 14 charts in a matter of a couple of months. And so I, we talked every day, multiple times a day, and I was copying from Wisconsin, and she was FedExing me stuff every day. And wow. Then it just spiraled from there. <laughs> spiraled out of control. Yeah. No, but it was, it's been amazing. And there was, a, I mean, obviously, I owe a huge debt of gratitude to her and everything that I've learned from her over the years. And yeah, it's a, we, we ended up with a very special relationship. There's something cosmic in some both of our past lives that we were somehow connected and yeah. yeah no it's great i mean and then eventually that's how i met you too so there's like a kind of yeah thread, a thread there. that's right i always forget how we met yeah, yeah selling cds selling cds for maria yeah and uh, if you... i didn't you show up in a suit this is what the story that you like to tell yeah yeah, <laughs> I thought I'm pretty sure you showed up in a suit and I just remember Probably. like yeah to sell CDs and I was just like yeah I like this guy <laughs> takes himself way too seriously he wore yeah. a suit yeah there you go this kid there you go tell the internet that if you want to make an impression show up to yeah, sell show CDs up in a suit, in a suit. <laughs> that's right change change your life yeah but Amazing. it is true you know not to like harp on this you know, mm-hmm. make it more philosophical than you need to but it it's those weird one fluke moments that somehow like make an impression somehow i made an impression on maria in that mm-hmm. one fluke email that i sent her or one moment that we first met mm-hmm. there's a reason that i remembered you from showing up to sell cds and now we've worked together for i don't even know how many times over like 12 or 15 years or something um so yeah, it's it's something to really think about when you're going about your business and meeting right. new people. And it's a small industry that we have here. It's a it's a small industry, and you never know the people that you meet and encounter. You never know how that is going to affect your future. Even a midwestern Wisconsin boy. Can yeah. make it big in the big city. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> but yeah, something like that, yeah. Cool. Well, I mean, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but is there anywhere where you can send people to like find out more about what you're up to and uh, any other things you might want to plug? Oh, um, yeah. Let's hope that the standard happens uh, the last week of May in New York City. We're doing sketches. Um, you can... Well, that ended uh, prematurely. Uh, Ryan was just telling us about his website, www.ryantruesdale.com. You can see uh, you can see what everything he's up to. He also does a lot of work with Brooke Meyer's um, estate, and he does uh, some uh, managing of some of the scores there and stuff. So if you were interested in more about uh, Brooke Meyer's music, you can head over there to Bob Brooke Meyer's website. But if you're just joining now, you want to go to the story and check out the live stream that we just did. It just kind of cut us off all of a sudden. Um, Ryan Truesdale and I, we did uh, a bit of a chat there about a lot of things, life and music. Um, so thanks for being here and thanks for, to Ryan uh, for, for being on the live stream. But uh, sorry we got cut off.